Lao Noah is an open book and an unraveling mystery. She will tell you her truth candidly. She will appear to hold nothing back. But each time you talk to her, she will reveal another new detail about herself that reframes the narrative so completely that it's hard to believe she ever withheld it. Lao Noah is both a realist and a magical realist. She's an uncompromising and determined indie artist. She books her own shows, produces her own recordings, and advocates on her own behalf. She has a practical understanding of how to make content and how to communicate with her fans. But she also seems to be searching the stars, deciphering her dreams, and following the river in her mind to the next location. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidra. Listening to Lau's music is like watching a river flow. It's all right in front of you, passing with natural fluidity. But you can never quite locate it, and you can never fully predict how it will move. The best way to experience it is to simply accept that it's flowing and let it wash over you. The river, in fact, is an image she likes to evoke in her songs. Lau seems to relate to the river, steady in its unyielding forward motion, unapologetic in its intransigent transience. In other words, it just is what it is. And yet she is also in search of something fixed, something rooted. On an early single off of her new record, Ados, which translates as For Two, she sings with Jacob Collier about a love affair between a river and a tree. Cause a tree stands too still for a river And a river's too wild for a tree Would he cut off his roots to be with her? Will she ever give up on the sea? Will she ever give up on the sea? One gets the sense that Lao Noah is saying that she is that river. She's an anthropomorphizing lyricist. The world depicted in her songs is something out of a fairy tale, more poetry than pop songwriting, more Marquez than McCartney. In her rendering, trees, chairs, even liberty take on human characteristics. Maybe that's a byproduct of having been raised speaking Catalan and Spanish, both gendered romance languages. She grew up in the small Catalan city of Reus. It's the birthplace of another artist who made immovable objects come to life and borrowed from nature in his modernist creations, Antony Gaudí. But today, Lau is a citizen of the world, or maybe more accurately, she's otherworldly. She left Spain for America at age 19 and never really looked back. I'm not sure that even Lau fully understands why she does what she does, or how she does it. It seems to have been a gift. Part of that gift is an affinity with the artful life, her comfort connecting to others, her willingness to follow the wind. At only 29 years old, Lau has already lived a lot of life and reinvented herself more than once. And another part of the gift is what she creates out of her life experiences. Haunting, complex, and evocative music that seems to come from another era. As a composer, her writing suggests a Baroque classicism. Her compositions are colored with counterpoint and often sound like a conversation between guitar and voice. Her melodies bounce wildly between octaves, her own voice leaping back and forth between her head and her chest. A conversation for one. (laughs) 
planeta que hasta en sueños lucha y grita ¿Cuándo fue que Dios murió y por qué no importa y eso va? ¿Quién lo mató? It's yet another example of the duality in her. She is at once cerebral and intuitive, balancing precariously between her head and her heart. Because while the music is seriously sophisticated, it's also totally self-invented. Lau is self-taught and actually lists Hannah Montana and Avril Lavigne as two of her primary source influences. But don't let that fool you. It might be the truth, but it's not really accurate. Lau is unlike any artist I've ever encountered, and she seems to have some direct universal access. Lau refers to Ados, her new record, as a bridge between song and symphony. She made the album as a series of duets with some of her most admired artist friends and some of the friends who most admired her. These include Chris Thiele, Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, Jorge Drexler, and Jacob Collier, among others. Much of Lau's access to these people came from her posting videos online and letting the internet work its magic, as she says. Some of her biggest fans are other musicians. Along the way, creative types like Larry Goldings, Ben Folds, Phoebe Bridgers, and Adam Neely reached out after discovering her on social media simply to offer their support and encouragement. And I count myself among them, too. I first reached out to her 18 months ago to meet and interview her. And in fact, the first news piece that I ever filed for WBGO Radio was about Lau. Lau Noah's dreamy music sounds like the soundtrack to a story still yet to be told. Maybe it's the soundtrack to her own dream, and we're all characters in it, if we choose to be. For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. I think people are compelled to reach out to her not simply because they dig what she's doing or because they want to work with her, but because they sense that she's really one of a kind, tapped into some kind of original source. She has no team, no manager, no label, no publisher, no nothing. She says that last year she played solo at the Royal Albert Hall in London, opening for Ben Folds, then came back to New York and immediately worked a 10-hour babysitting shift to pay the rent. It's rough out here. I'm not saying that what she does is for everyone. In our conversation, Lau tells me the story that when the singer Cecile McLaurin-Salvant first heard her sing, her response was, Lau, you are so weird. And coming from Cecile, that is really saying something. But fortunately, it didn't keep Cecile from singing a duet with Lau on Ados. Si te vas mañana Bajo el calor de este sol tibio Lloraré seis lágrimas de amor Y una de alivio What Lau does is undeniable and I am hard-pressed to think of another artist like her or who makes me feel the way she does. There are countless young, infinitely talented and ambitious musicians out here today, but there really is only one Lau Noah. History may prove me wrong, but I believe that Lau Noah is here to stay, maybe just not in any one place for very long. We spoke recently about her artful life, the journey that led her out of Spain and onto the world stage, how struggling with agoraphobia as a teenager helped her to become an artist, why shared adversity creates community, her adventures in babysitting, the way couch surfing changed her life, being comfortable as the odd one in any situation, and making her record, Ados. 
Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, get involved, check out the archive. Hundreds of deep diving conversations like this one. Past episodes with friends and collaborators of Laos, including Larry Goldings, Jorge Drexler, Richard Julian, Jake Sherman, and Jesse Harris. We are made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. And it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to help keep the lights on. Finally, as we enter the new year, I want to remind you that it's never a bad thing to leave a review or some stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here's me and Lau Noah talking it down. I don't get to do this very often. Do what? Have a conversation with somebody for the second time. But in our case, what's interesting is I met you a year and a half ago and we did a long interview that's right. Which didn't really come out. We just used little pieces of it to tell mm-hmm. the story quickly of your background. And here we are a year and a half later doing it again. In the year and a half since then, I feel like your professional life has really started to blossom. So I'm hoping that today we can talk about both what's been happening with you recently, what's about to happen as you release this record, but also that we can go back and revisit your origin story of how you got here because, you know, you are a very mysterious character. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I'm glad that that's the way it looks from the outside. You don't think you're a mysterious character? I mean, I guess not. I feel like I'm stumbling and struggling around. That's how it feels more than anything. Tell me more about that. I'm not supposed to see myself as a mysterious person. If my um, vocation requires me to explore myself all the time and know myself all the time, you know, I feel like a lot of the endeavors I approach in life require of this mystery that has nothing to do with me. Mm. But there's like an extra element in the room that makes music happen and that makes things happen sometimes I don't know do you believe in destiny this stuff you know I feel like the way artists live life sometimes kind of requires for you to believe in these things one thing I remember about your story is that you moved to New York not playing guitar Mm -hmm. I do think that you had a background a musical background and a familiarity and a sophistication that we did not talk about the first time we met Mm. but what I do remember is that you came here and you didn't play guitar and this speaks to your idea of those moments that seemed predestined, you found yourself in a house with a guitar or something and became a guitar player? Somewhat, yeah. I guess I became someone that played guitar in an unusual way. I I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. I think it's easy to see, like, suddenly I start playing guitar and I did not play guitar before and then there's this very weird complex way of playing the guitar that 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 I managed to achieve hmm. but I think what happened was I had no idea how to approach that instrument and hmm. so I did it my way and yes. I guess that's why it feels it's just different yeah but I also there are very a lot of things on guitar that would be easy for any any other guitarist that are just complicated for hmm. me you know but likewise there are things that you do that seem extremely complicated to most guitar players that seem natural to you all right let's go back okay how did you get to new york mm. let's go back even further yeah you grew up in barcelona i grew up in reus which is a small city a couple hours south of barcelona yeah i grew up in a family where music was important it was important in the sense that someone read an article somewhere that said that you know music helps 
uh, kids' brains or something. Yeah, right. So as little kids, me and my cousins, I have like 20 cousins and we grew up together. We all went to music school. Yeah. But we went to music school from the age of, I guess, five to like eight or 10. And almost everybody dropped out then. At um, 10. Including myself. Yeah. It was like, I just, it's not working. And studying yeah. piano, studying... Well, I guess at that age, we did... I think you started... You chose your instrument at around seven yeah. or eight. And I chose piano. Yeah. So I did a couple of years of classical piano that were devastating because my teacher decided that the best thing to do was to teach me the most complicated and ugliest Bella Bartok pieces. <laughs> so I despised it. And I would bring her my songs about princesses and pirates. And she'd always say... This is not a classroom for you to bring your music. This is a class for you to learn mm. from the greats, right? And I couldn't take that, so I left. So you were writing songs already about princesses and dragons? I was, yeah. And did you continue after you were shut down by your teacher? Absolutely. I continued playing piano, writing more songs. Yeah. I think I the songwriting thing has, been, has always been like that. Yeah. I have photos of myself holding a pencil in a very professional way at the age of like one or two yeah laying on the floor trying to write lyrics and i didn't know how to write or read but i would yeah. pretend to be writing lyrics while watching disney movies because i loved the songs so what did your parents do my mom is a high school teacher uh -huh. and my dad has an insurance company did you go to college in spain before you came here I did not go to college. No, that was the the big thing with my parents, who obviously wanted me to go to college. They wanted me to have a career. And at 16, I think I have to say that from th 13 to 15, I had um, very severe agoraphobia mm. and anxiety. And I couldn't go to school for a while. I had paralysis, body paralysis, a lot of things that I think once I got out of that, I think that changed my life, really, because it made me see that um, that could never happen to me before. And for that, I had to have an, in to have an interesting life. I had to do things that were scary to me because I could not bear the idea of living my life stuck in a room ever again. Body paralysis and agoraphobia from 13 to 15. Yeah. Was there an event that triggered it? I think it was a, a bunch of events, a bunch of things. Uh, I'm still not sure why specifically then, but I was hypersensitive. I was really worried and scared about many things. I would cry to my mom at night in kindergarten, asking her, how do we go to heaven when we die if we have no wings? Mm. And I was so worried about that stuff. Mm. So I think it was a compilation of this stuff, you know. Do you remember the first signs of paralysis? What broke down first? I think what the first thing that happened was my lungs, which was crazy. I was in class and then I would just run out of breath and couldn't breathe anymore. And so that was the first sign. And it kind of came out of the blue once. In a, I was in the middle of English lesson or something. And then the buildup of tension, what it does, it just it creates so much tension in your body that your body stops moving. It's just like you know, stuck. Yeah. And that would happen immediately all over my body. Just you couldn't move. And could you feel when it was coming on or it would just come out of nowhere? I think it would happen when I would lay down mostly. I don't know why. After two years, did you develop any technique for it to go away or it just 
past? No, no, I, I, I did a lot of work. I saw things. It was really scary. My mind was going places, and I never told my parents because I thought, I guess I was smart enough to think, if people know that, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up, you know. So Like I you did, might be institutionalized or put somewhere? Or maybe what? or, you know, given some medication mm. I didn't want to take. So the approach was I'm going to take, uh, I took like natural stuff like valerian mm -hmm. stuff. Root, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and then I found a cassette that had a meditation session by this Jacobsen guy. And I would play that over and over in my cassette player. And that helped a mm. lot. And I did, like, I did that about five times a day. So meditation mm. got me out of that. So as you outgrew this agoraphobia and paralysis, mm. you thought to yourself, I don't ever want to go through that again. And it's my job to live an interesting life yeah. and not stay stuck at home and not isolate myself from the world. Yeah. So what did that mean? I mean, how did that determine what choices you made? Well, I was 16 when I decided to move to an artist commune about uh, near Barcelona, about two hours from where I lived, with a bunch of musicians. Where? In a place called Vegas. Oh, it's um, uh, Jorge, Rossi's Jorge Rossi's place. place. Jorge is a character, and he's a fascinating musician, and he's a very, very kind human. I have heard about that commune. I've heard it was a complicated place, but I've heard it's it a very complicated yeah. place. It was a very complicated place, especially for a young girl like yes. myself. Can you speak to that, or do you not want to get into no, it? No, it's fine. I think. I mean, I don't have to name names. Jorge was barely there, by the way. He yeah. was always in Barcelona or touring. He he then was already teaching in Basel. So yeah. He would spend a lot of time in Switzerland and stuff. But it was it was a weird time. People who lived there were people who had just finished their uh, jazz degrees, yeah. right? Who didn't have many gigs <laughs> and who uh, had some sort of like pessimism towards their future as musicians, you mm. know? At that time, the scene was not as great as it is now in Barcelona. Mm. And so they mostly lived in that house, went to bed really late, and, yeah. you know, smoked a lot of yeah. pot and... And I was really young. And there was this one thing, which I think it actually helped me a lot as a musician, but it was unfortunate, which was that I wasn't really allowed to play in the house. And I was there for a good two years, you know. Were you there as a musician, though? Kind of. Yes, I was there living there. and um, I. But you didn't play guitar yet. No, I played piano. I played like pop songs on piano and sang. But because of that, because I did not play jazz, there was this like understood thing that it was just not for me to use the instrument in the public spaces, right? And if I had ever tried to do that, I suffered the consequence, which was someone like shaming. Ridicule. Right. What that did was it got me to listen to a lot of music I hadn't heard ever before. And I was in a listening state for two years. And because of Jorge and the seminar that he does every year a jazz seminar in vegas he brought all these monster musicians from new york from all over the, U the u.s so i met peter bernstein i met mark turner cord i met rat all these people who came to that got forsaken place mm. just to teach some music to some kids there you know and then some of them would stay in the house so you got to be friendly with them? Or? Well, I had no idea who they were. Yeah. So I would approach them and be like, what do you play? You know, And I think they kind of liked that. So we developed a friendship. And they ended up telling me about, oh, yeah, I once had a Spanish girlfriend when I was young. Da, da, da. 
all this stuff. Everybody once had a Spanish girlfriend <laughs> when they were young. <laughs> right, and they always remember them, but none of them are together yeah. anymore. Yeah. I relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there was something about demystifying musicians before you became one of them that was helpful to you. Mm-hmm. You know, just seeing that these are just people yeah. and they're flawed and imperfect. Yeah, I think that was one of the things. And the other one was when you are told no a lot, you won't do it, you won't make it, uh, you're not good enough. Blah, blah, blah. You, you have two options. You either quit and do something else or you just stop listening mm. and and go your own way, which I think is what happened and what got me where I am now. Yeah. What was your listening like then? What were you inspired by musically at that point? I was in a very passive state. I think it was very complicated mentally for me. So I just listened to whatever they played, which was a lot of, well, it was jazz all the time, you know. But I discovered some records that I I didn't know, Brad Mello, for example, and I fell in love with Brad, um, Highway Rider, that Mm -hmm. specific album was so beautiful, so nice to me because it made me realize that there's a, a bridge between that very melodic, beautiful pop world I came from and the modern jazz that sometimes they would play that I could un- I could not understand, right? And there was this extremely complex but beautiful um, melody-based music yeah. within jazz that I was really attracted to. your songwriter songwriting influences and poetry influences because maybe because you write a lot in Spanish you also write in English but you write so much in Spanish in the states maybe people don't think of you as somebody who's actually writing lyrics if they don't understand them you know what I mean it just kind of becomes this sound that washes over you and it's so tied to the guitar playing but you're very poetic with what you write and I know that you take your lyrics extremely seriously and that Mm. they're very meaningful to you what was the lyrical aspect of your development like Uh, my influences during those years um, were Hannah Montana and Avril Lavigne they were (laughs) not very profound lyrics smooth talking so rocking he's got everything that a girl's want guitar cutie he plays it groovy and I can keep myself from doing something but I did watch a lot of purist cinema, and I read a lot of books. I think it came from there. Yeah. Not from music. So you decided eventually to move to New York. Yeah, I decided to get out of that situation I was in, and I had no money at all. Yeah. My rent in Vegas was like 100 euros, and I lived in the laundry room. So it was <laughs> a very precarious situation. So I maybe had 200 euros, mm. and I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave far away. So I went online and I found an agency that gets young girls from Europe a visa to move to the U.S. to work for families as a nanny. Yeah. An au pair. Au pair, yeah. And I signed up. I found a family upstate New York Mm. that would have me. And that was maybe late November, early December. And in January, I moved to the U.S. Of what year? Of 2014. Did you speak English? Barely. 
that that got me a lot of problems in the beginning with the kids and the mom and that stuff. But where upstate? Westchester, Rye. And how long did you stay there? Nine months. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> no, the, <laughs> the kids were lovely, but the parents were the American cliche of despicable and mm. yeah. It was it was kind of fun because to me it was like I had seen these movies, um, Nanny Diaries with Scarlett Johansson and this kind of stuff, and I saw you know the typical Upper East Side mom that treats her really badly, and then I found myself in that movie, but in real life, yeah. I was like, damn, that exists. Yeah. So that was intense. But Did you come down to the city at all? Yeah, I had one day off a week, and I would take the Metro North and come to the city and go to open mics and jam sessions to try and meet musicians. Playing piano and singing. Well, yeah. And jam sessions where mostly people play jazz. I, I didn't, wouldn't dare play yeah. piano, but I would sing a couple of the standards I knew. What standards? I loved all the romantic ones. Misty, uh, The Nearness of You, uh, In My Solitude, God Bless the Child, all mm -hmm. that stuff. And... Eventually, you left this house in Rye, mm -hmm. and then what? Moved in with another family, or, or worked for another family? No, I moved to Brooklyn, and I yeah. started having all the all the jobs you can get, like waitress, hostess in restaurants, uh, babysitting, dog walking. What was your visa situation? My visa situation was complicated. We'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was complicated visa situations until it was no longer complicated. I could set my settle my papers and stuff, and. That's most of my life in New York has been doing odd jobs and then having a weekly or bi-weekly gig at the bitter end. Oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been. I made it clear to myself that I would not go back there. But yeah, it was a terrible deal at the door. Yeah. The people running it, you know, uh, they were also questionable. And the sound was horrible. The yeah. piano was terrible. Everything was terrible. It got me to play with people I liked. Yeah. I had a rock band. It was like a mm, Radiohead-like writing, right? In English. Mm. Pretty bad English. So you put a band together. You were part of a band. I put a band this. together. Yeah, it was my music, my songs. Yeah. I think what happened was after those two years in Vegas, with all the modern jazz influence, joining it with my pop music uh, upbringing, what it created was... Radiohead-like music, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you found musicians you related to or that you connected with. That's right. And you put this band together. Yeah. When did the guitar enter? 2016, February. Almost two years exactly after you moved to the States. That's right. Had you gone home? I went home two years, uh, around that time, I think, maybe a bit before, I think the December 2015, mm -hmm. because that's the time I got my papers settled and I could leave the country and come yeah. back. Was your family surprised that you left? Were they hoping that you would go home? I think my both my mom and my dad had different reactions. My mom was upset and worried and thought that I had gone crazy. But that had started <laughs> a bit earlier. And my dad, was his approach was like, I, you do you, you know, but in a way that like he's like, he maybe accepted that he couldn't really understand the desires I had for life because they were very different from his. Mm -hmm. You have cousins. Do you have siblings? I have a younger sister. Yeah. R remind me of the story of the guitar. You were staying in a, somebody's house or something and there was a guitar there? Yeah, I was staying at this guy's house. I'm not even sure if that was the time. I met him through couch surfing because I had yeah. no money to get a hotel or anything. So... 
he was a stranger. This is in New York or where? That was it? in Montreal. Yeah, I went to Montreal. Um, in February of 2016. Yeah, it was snowy. It was crazy, icy. Just to experience it? Yeah, I had gone there the summer before, if I remember correctly, yeah. and I loved it. Yeah. And so I wanted to just go back. And I went back and I stayed at this guy's house. He had told me that, that morning, oh, we have uh, tickets to go to a Patrick Watson show. Mm -hmm. And we'll have a ticket for you. I was like, amazing. And then the evening came and then he texted me and he's like, uh, yeah, no tickets, sorry. So I was stuck in the apartment. There was a snowstorm outside. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the concert ended up getting canceled, but it was, cr it was insane. It was February yeah. in Montreal. Yeah. And I had nothing else to do. And he had a guitar in the apartment. He had no other instruments. There's this thing in Spanish that a woman I know used to say, me estoy tocando encima, mm -hmm. which is like, I'm so, I really need to play, mm -hmm. but I think it comes from me estoy meando encima, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. Right? like I really need to pee. It's like yeah. that urge. Yeah, yeah, you have right. an urge yes. to play. So yeah, I grabbed a guitar and I guess I thought, okay, I can sing and I can try and find the notes on the guitar blindly to harmonize what I'm singing in a way like I would do on piano. And that's how it started. But I, yeah, I just started note by note until I finished the song. Is it still a song that you play? No. Is it good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was in Spanish also. It was for the first time a song I had written in Spanish because before I was just writing in English. How did you develop this thing? How did you invent Lao Noah as we know it? <laughs> I think what happened was I wrote that song in Montreal and I sent it to a person I really liked. He was in my band, uh, the rock band. And he had never ever said something about my music that was as beautiful as what he said when he heard that guitar song. And uh, we fell in love. And I have to say, I think that's the reason it became so intense for me. I wanted to make him proud. I wanted to write music that he would be inspired by and that he would admire. So I started writing all of these guitar songs very quickly um, <laughs> to try and develop a language between the two of us. And we started playing together a lot. And, and you know, and that ended, it was a very short who, who was affair. This? This guy that played bass in my band that was great, he's an amazing musician, and we had the shortest lo love story yeah. um, and the most intense I've ever had in my life. And it's probably, I feel like it was like that because of the uh, insertion of the guitar in my life and how great it felt. So the, the truth is that I started doing it for him and then it became my favorite thing about my life. Mm -hmm. So... Once that relationship ended, I continued to play guitar. Also, when I started writing guitar songs, I posted them on Facebook, and that got the attention of some people I really admired, like Larry Goldings. And Larry sent me a message very early on in the game. I had posted maybe three or four videos. I had three or four guitar songs. On Facebook. I didn't Instagram. even have Instagram yeah. then. It must have been 2017. Yeah. And he sent me a message and he said, if you're ever in L.A., let me know. And I'll just have a soiree in my house and invite a bunch of musicians so that you can get to know them and they can get to know your music. And at that time, I was babysitting 10 hours a day. So I, I had some money. So I booked a flight to L.A. I was like, matter of fact, I'm going to be in L.A. next week. You know, I thought I can't miss this opportunity. 
And what happened in LA was that I went to Larry's house. I met him then, and he invited the best in the game. He invited people from uh, Maroon 5, uh, the musicians in the band. He invited Blake Mills. Mm -hmm. He invited John Williams' brother. These really influential, incredible musicians from the underground, you know, mm -hmm. the ones that are in the back of mm -hmm. the big things that go on. And that um, connected me to so many people that years later were still talking about me and ended up giving me a lot of opportunities. You had five or six songs at that time? Yeah, I think I played five or six songs. How do you think he found it? Do you think he somebody sent it to him? Yeah, I think it was Jake Sherman. Jake Sherman was... Uh, so this is what I was going to ask you where Jake Sherman enters because you told me that Jake Sherman heard you doing what you do and said, you have to perform this. You have to do this. Yeah, he was the one who forced me to have my first live show on the guitar because I thought I had... Uh, I, I thought, you know, these songs are my thing. They're kind of weird. I'm going to just play them in my room. And then I went to a Jake Sherman show and he's amazing. And so I went to say hi afterwards. And I guess, I mean, we're super good friends now, but I think what he saw then was like, oh, you know, another girl with a guitar and, and you know, another singer-songwriter. Yeah. And uh, I told him to check out my music and he didn't. He did not. He did not. Yeah. But a few months later, he was selling a keyboard and I contacted him about it. And I think at that moment, he checked my page and he saw my videos. And then it was like, Ah, <laughs> want to hang out? You want to yeah. play? You yeah. know? <laughs> so we started playing, and then he shared one of my videos on Facebook. And Larry saw it. And Larry saw it. You know, it's a little bit like what happened with Jacob Collier when he started posting his videos, and it was way before that. You know, I don't know if it was 2014 or something. They just got shared. No algorithm could have done what the actual network of musicians did, which is, oh my God, you got to see this. And it got in the hands of the right people yeah. very quickly. Yeah. So it sounds like this is what happened with you. And, and it does kind of establish something that has remained very constant in your development ever since then, which is the power of the internet in growing your audience and your public and also in connecting you with a network of other artists. Ultimately, I think that will get us to your record, which is an exercise in collaboration with artists, many of whom I imagine you did not meet first in person, but maybe met through the network of the internet. Absolutely. You talked about when we first met the internet having its power. You told me that you put your music online and the internet has its power. That you live in New York not because you need to live in New York for professional reasons, but you said you needed to live in New York literally for the suffering that it <laughs> so brought dramatic. upon you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you still relate to that? No, no, I think I think once you hit that 10 year threshold, you stop thinking about this bullshit and you go, no, actually, I want a quiet, nice life. Yeah. Good quality. But for a while, you do have to do that. I think it's not it's not you don't come here to look for the suffering. Yeah. I think it's just that it happens because yeah. it's a really hard city. Yeah. But you have a lot of people who have the same experience. And when a place is really difficult to live in. There are other reasons why you're here, but you really have to think of the reasons why you're doing the things that you do here. Yes. So it makes you be very thoughtful and very conscious of why or yeah. what or when or how or with who. You yeah. Know? And I think that's exciting. That's interesting. Yeah. You know. Adversity, maybe not suffering, but a certain kind of adversity. Adversity creates community better than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> you did develop 
a pretty natural affinity online Mm -hmm. to playing alone, to making videos, to figuring out how to present yourself in that space. Was that a natural fit for you? It actually was. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I hear a lot of my friends uh, truly suffering about this whole social media thing and feeling like it's just a drag. Right. But I think I enjoyed it. And maybe it's in a general sense because I got really good feedback for everything I've posted. But I think it's also that I decided if I'm going to make this my job and it, it will give me opportunities to do what I want to do most, which is play live and to play with people I admire that's an amazing tool to do that. So I better enjoy it. Yeah. You know? To me, it's like, I'm going to make the most beautiful music I can make, record it in a beautiful way, post it and write a good story about it. And it's a journal. It's a, It can become something highly artistic. Where are you at with TikTok? Oh, you know, I have a problem with TikTok, which I think is just ugly. It's not beautifully, it's not beautiful aesthetically. So mm. I, I don't enjoy being on TikTok. It's also not a place where you have a space to write about things you know it's mostly a video and and it's also shorter and faster and i think it rewards things that i don't like um whereas on instagram they're very similar but on instagram you you know you can you can have a a fairly long video playing you can play a long song you have enough space to write deeply about something yeah and people read that stuff still I remember last year that you were telling me that as you were meeting with consultants and potential uh, marketing partners or management partners, whatever, yeah. putting this record together, mm. the word, I remember you said this to me, you know the word that the came up again and again and again was TikTok. Yeah. And I remember you saying, I'm, you know, you're struggling with whether or not you're going to do this and whether or not you have to do this. And so you ultimately decided it's not for you. No. It is not for me, and I don't think I need it. Honestly, yeah. things are going very well. Yeah. They are growing organically. When people spoke about TikTok as the main thing that people are looking for, they what they expect is that you're going to post a video, and from one day to another, you're going to go viral. Yeah. And your career is just going to go from zero to 2,000 yeah. in a second. And we're seeing it all over the place, where people who did that, and that happened to their careers, they go on tour, and they cannot take it and they have a huge mental health crisis and Mm. they have to cancel their tours and it's happening more and more and more and more really because it takes so much resilience man to be a musician to tour to play for so many people to give yourself emotionally to so many people every single night you know that won't happen naturally to you if you are used to living at your parents (laughs) And then suddenly you are touring arenas, you know. I think it's really important that it's organic and it grows slowly. Well, there's that obsession and fixation with youth also. Right. You're supposed to happen very quickly and we're supposed to celebrate that you're 17 years old. And if you're not, you know what I mean? Like, And what you're describing is something that actually will sustain a career. Yeah. And maybe that also explains why so many of the people that were drawn to you initially were career artists. You were invited to open for Chris Thiele last year on the road this year for Ben Folds. Mm-hmm. These are people who are deeply established in their careers and Larry Golding's first. Yeah. And by shining a light on you in a way, the message is this is another artist that we see as being a career artist, somebody who is going to have a long career. Yeah, I had this realization in Guatemala. Gabi Moreno mm. invited me to a festival that she uh, has there every year. And she invited Silvana Estrada mm-hmm. and David Aguilar 
and me to play there. It was the four of us on that festival. And I remember it, it, drinking mezcal also helped because it was, <laughs> it was sponsored by Illegal Mezcal and they, we had free mezcal, so I had a lot of mezcal. Mm -hmm. So that also helped my, uh, my emotional outburst. But I remember thinking and realizing, wow, I am included in this group of people that everyone else thinks are some of the best musicians and they're doing great work. And I realized that and I started crying. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know. And then Gabby Moreno sang on your record. You seem to exude a very strong sense of confidence, and you did from when I met you. Hmm. So in a way, I'm actually relieved to know that you had a moment where you looked around and thought, oh my God, I'm included among these people. Well, no, man, you know what it is. It's the constant having to prove myself mm -hmm. still happens. Yeah. You know, I just went on tour with Ben Folt, yeah. and the setup was I had in-house engineers to uh, to do the sound yeah. for my set. Um, ben Folt's engineers did not want to do my set. And then every time I would go on stage, they ended up being lovely people, yeah. by the way. That was just like a preset thing. Every time I would go on stage for my sound check, there'd be some guy, some old guy sitting in the mixing table and I'd be all plugged in and, and like ready to go and he wouldn't even look up and he was scrolling on his phone, you know. And I'd have to be like, hey, I'm ready. And then he'd be like, yep, and keep scrolling because I was just the opening act. I was just a girl with mm -hmm. a guitar, mm -hmm. you know. And every single night I would start playing up for my sound check and then they would respect me and they would pay attention to me and end up asking if I felt comfortable you know, or, yeah. if the sound was good if this and sometimes they would even like change the, my mics for better mics you know but I had to prove myself every night yeah and I think I mean I'm very critical with my music but I have to it's not pretending I have to fight constantly for that approval still yes so I can be humble but I also know my worth as a I musician see. You know? So in a way, you have to present with a certain amount of confidence and sense of uh, self-possession uh, yeah. in order to just survive. Yeah, but I think it also for the first time in my life, I truly believe yes. in what I do. Did you tell me once that you, did you make a record with Blake Mills that didn't come out or started to make <laughs> yes. a record with Blake that didn't come out? Yeah, it just didn't, it didn't work out. We recorded, it was a... a, a a, th a thing that happened out of the moment. It was because of Larry. Yeah. Years later, uh, I texted Blake that I had met at Larry's, yeah. um, that I was in LA, and he's like, come over to the studio. And I went to the studio, and he had shown my music to uh -huh. everybody. <laughs> Tony Berg, who, yeah. who um, co-produces in, in that space, the beautiful uh, Sound City Studios. And uh, I was about to put out my Tiny Desk. My Tiny Desk was coming out like a, a month from then. And Blake had, had this idea, oh, let's make a record so that you have a record to put out once the Tiny Desk comes out. Yeah, well, he's right about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, well, we did it, but he had this idea of he put a piece of rubber under the strings of my guitar. That's a very trendy thing, the rubber bridge guitar. Right. 
we did that, but we did that for the whole record. And when I listened back, I was like, I don't like it. I don't like. I don't think I was. Also, I was ready to make a record then. Yeah. But also, I didn't like that idea because I played classical guitar, yeah. and the beauty of classical guitar is the resonance of the yeah. nylon strings, and it all sounded like a, you know, like another instrument. Yeah. So uh, we that never came out. Maybe you didn't even know how strongly you felt about what you wanted and what you didn't want until you heard something like that and thought, no, this is not me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually sets the precedent for a lot of what's happened for you since then. There have been a lot of voices in your head telling you you should do this, you should do that. And you've been very DIY about the way you handle things. Yeah. The other thing about that that I think didn't work against you, but in retrospect, I wonder how you feel about it, is you were so developed so quickly that you had the opportunity to do a tiny desk before you had a record, before you had a real following, before you were really on tour. And it does show you that there are the right moments for things. And maybe that was one that happened a little too soon for you. Absolutely. It happened at a time when it shouldn't have happened. But you don't say no to that. Yeah. You just go and do it. I cannot tell how many of the musicians who I can call friends now discovered me because of that tiny desk. Because some of them end up coming to me later in years and and that's where they found me. If I could choose, I would play a tiny desk maybe next year, not yeah. not in 2019 when no one knew me, when I still was so green on like music I was writing, yeah. my relationship with the guitar, all that stuff. Yeah. But that's what I'm sorry, this is a strange interview because we've hung out in the last year and you've told me things. And so it's risky for me to bring up things that you've told me in That's confidence, okay. but you can always just tell me you don't want to talk about it. Mm. But I remember you also told me that as a woman in the sort of New York musician scene, that something similar happens to you as you've become more successful. Like it, at first you were kind of the girlfriend of a musician who also wanted to or of musicians who also wanted to be a musician you know when you've got two musicians who are dating or whatever or in the social network and you kind of were a second class musician mm-hmm. and then over time as you've become more successful the power dynamic has started to shift between you I've just you become single forever <laughs> <laughs> you become single because you think male musicians are afraid of being with a woman who's more successful than them I don't know I don't know if it's that. I think it's harder to find a partner when your career takes off uh, and it becomes the focus of your life. Yeah. It's a, I think dating uh, we can talk about it, <laughs> but I think it's it, it's going through a lot of changes as well, like in the core of what people look for in each other because of this changes of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman Mm. in society nowadays. I think everyone's just really confused Mm -hmm. of what's their job nowadays in that setting. So I think that's, uh, it's just extremely complicated because a lot of people might still be inclined to uh, developing a relationship with someone in a more conservative way, Mm -hmm. uh, preserving more conservative roles, but it's looked 
down upon in society nowadays. So you end up having this very strange thing where men don't know how to approach women. They don't know how to talk to them anymore. They don't know what's offensive, what's not offensive. And then women end up having to do all the work <laughs> in the dating department now, like approaching the person, you know, it, it, weird. It's just a weird time. I don't know. <laughs> do you, it's interesting because I don't think of you as a traditional person, but I do see that you live a creative life. Yeah. And that I think y your belief is that your job starts at the life level yeah. and then it is filtered through your own life into the work. So the artful life, the creative life, the interesting life is the job. Mm -hmm. And then the work is a kind of a byproduct of the life. That's kind of how I see you. Yeah. And yet maybe there are parts of you that are more quote unquote traditional or would want to have a more traditional framework? I think so. I mean, I I was born in 94. Mm. I ate those Disney movies like <laughs> Christmas cookies, you know, like like everyone. Yeah. But I do think that when life, the life that you lead is so, so complex, so not organized, so uh, at the hands of the wind, you mm. know, I think... It, Mm. You end up craving some sort of solidity, some mm. sort of stability stability with somebody. Because I think in general, love requires of that constant feeding and patience. And that most times has to do with getting to know somebody and staying in one place and going on dates and exploring each other constantly, you know during a long period of time that's very difficult to do when you're touring most months of the year you know yeah i think it's extremely difficult and i think some artists choose to be in relationships with other artists because they feel that they at least have some sense of compatible experience to yeah. share others choose not to be with anybody others choose to be not with an artist it's complicated yeah it is complicated but who knows that the thing is that we all know as artists that we would not give up on our profession, our vocation, the passion, the love of our lives. Mostly is music is not a person. You can share that spot with someone. But it's funny how it works because I think for this like career musicians, for example, you go through all the changes, all the struggle, all the hustling, all the... Uh, gigging for a hundred mm. bucks in your 20s yeah and only in your late 20s early 30s is when you start receiving some reward from all the work you've done mm -hmm. that is what's natural growth that yes. what, what we're talking about so for women it kind of clashes with the moment when you start thinking about settling down and having a family yes Society is really strong on you with that as well. Like, oh, now you're in the peak moment of fertility. That's the moment you should have children, right? In your late 20s, early 30s and stuff. And I mean, that plays a part for people who want to be mothers like myself. It's mm. like, okay. But you have just arrived at a moment where you can start seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. You know, it happens now. Yeah. I'm 29. And I'm not ready to stop pursuing that. Yes. You know? So I either find a partner that is okay with that that either lives that kind of lifestyle as well, or that is really just really happy to have me go and come back whenever I'm done. Yes. Or I'm not with anybody. Yeah. But as I say that, I go, well, yeah, that's the way it is. I would not right now uh, give up my career for... I mean, that is the question that's hanging over this is, okay, but would you be okay if you sang songs to your children and that was it? Yeah, right now I wouldn't. Yeah. I would not. Yeah. Eventually, 
Yeah. Maybe so. Make soundtracks for movies work more from home. Yes. You know, go on tour two months out of the year instead of eight. Yes. Maybe. Sure. As you connected with people first online and then traveling around the world, you started to record these duets. Yeah. I could see you making a record that was very produced. You mm. know, you have this wonderful facility, virtuosic thing with the guitar and your voice. They're beautifully interwoven with each other. And I could see thinking, this is going to be my first real recording statement and I want to put together a killer band and do elaborate arrangements, whatever. And instead you did this really, I think, interesting record, which is very small. It's you and the guitar and your voice and generally one other person either singing or singing and playing. For the most part, it's it's just little duets. Tell me about how this project developed and how you found that as the way you wanted to present yourself. I think I did the best I could with what I had. <laughs> Honestly, I think my priority was to, um, to record songs. I think this record is a compilation of songs that are more songs than anything I've written before on the guitar. I think I started writing a lot of this like very classically influenced, complex, harmonically rich um, and very fast songs in counterpoint with my voice. And I think what I ended up doing on this record was to find the complexity of that counterpoint and this like symphonic classical music influence thing, putting it inside the structure of a simple song. Mm. But to me, the way I wanted to come into the world as my first record. Yes. I think to me it was much more interesting to do it holding the hands of people who have the kind of careers I want. Mm. I think it was it was much more interesting to me than just spending a lot of money I don't have on a highly produced record when I don't have a team, I don't have yeah. anybody, you know. So I'm still in the building process. Or doing it alone. I mean, the alternative would all also have been yeah. to just do it alone, which is the way most people experience you live. Yeah. It, it is your strength. You are one of the, I hear you on this record and I see the performance, the videos of the performance and it's like kind of shocking that these are live performances. Mm. These are live takes. That's so much of the power of what you do is that it's live. So you could have also just chosen to do it by yourself. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, that you wanted to position yourself in the proximity of people whose careers you admire and the kind of careers you would like to have. Yeah. And signal to an audience, this is who I see myself as. This is who I would like to be. This is the kind of artist that I want you to see me as. Yeah. And these are the kind of people that, that I surround myself with as well. There is obviously a strategic part to all this stuff. It's also like you were telling me that the only way one can have a career nowadays is by going viral on TikTok mm -hmm. or having a lot of money behind you and having a big corporation that can pay for ads in, in Times Square. I go, well, no, the people who have that want to play on my record mm. for free. <laughs> <You> <laughs> and that actually I can say that in confidence now because because it happened, but throughout the process, it was extremely uh, precarious, the whole thing. It was really not, uh, you know, I, I don't have a manager that can reach out to these people's teams very professionally and offer a rate or anything. These were people that I had met on Instagram through other musicians, you know, who had shown interest in my music before I 
you know, I did not slide into anyone's DMs mm -hmm. demanding or requesting they record in my record. We had developed a personal relationship yes. before I asked them to be on my record, and we had developed it in person. So I think the problem nowadays is that a lot of these relationships created online stay online. Yes. And I made it a, a point. A point that that wouldn't happen to me. So in every situation I had, I went and I met these people live and we went out for coffee and we spoke about their wives and their, their, mm. uh, their desires and their favorite food, hmm. you know. And then I also, you know, I wrote many songs and I would not send them a song I didn't think was worth their time. Yes. So I, I sent them songs I was really proud of. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the relationships with these people. Okay. I'll start with the one with Chris Thiele. Yeah. I was a big fan of Chris. Yeah. I knew Nickel Creek, but yeah. I think I discovered him on this album he has with Brad Mello, the mm. duo album. That's so good. Oh, right. So beautiful. And uh, 2021, a few months before, uh, Jacob Collier started following me on Instagram, and we started talking. We had never met in person. And then... It, I think it was June or July 2021, he was going to play at the Blue Note. So he invited me to play. And Chris was one of the guests uh -huh. as well. And someone said, oh yeah, Chris Dilly is here. Yeah. I was like, damn, okay, I want to go and tell him I really love his music. But not like everyone else does it, but in a way that it would make him ask me, do you play anything? <laughs> well, you know. So I was going up the stairs, you know, the Blue Note, mm -hmm. the dressing rooms are upstairs yep. in the bathrooms. And going up the stairs thinking about what I'm going to say to him. And then he he appears on top of the stairs and he goes, Lau, I finally meet you. I love your music. And I was like, oh my God, that's <laughs> great. I adore your music yeah. as well. Um, so that was, you know, that was amazing because what Chris did was put put ourselves in the same level mm -hmm. in a very, very generous way. Yeah. He was like, here, take my number. Let's play. But Chris, he's so lovely, but he's the worst person to get back at you whenever you send him a message. You know, he has a chaotic life. Yes. He has an amazing life commitments and music and family. And so um, I texted him maybe a couple of days later. Hey, let's hang out. And he obviously never answered. So that, there's that, right? That was July, maybe. Yep. Um, in March of the next year, I get an email in the morning from his team being like, would you like to open for Chris? Chris would would love for you to open his tour in Europe. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I guess he just didn't ignore me yeah. or he didn't forget about me, yeah. but, you know, yeah. So that's how it happened. And so we played a few dates in Europe then. That was 2022. Yeah. And then I guess he was happy with that. So then he offered me to open for Nickel Creek early this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And then I guess it was around that time at Nickel Creek where I was like, I have this song. I'd love for you to play in my record. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, send it to me. You know? And obviously he just had one day off, like a couple hours. And we happened to be in New York at the same time. So he came into the, my friend's studio and we recorded it. I was so happy because it's not an easy song. And the solo part of it is very complex as well. And he had yeah, learned it. He knew it, he knew the lyrics, he had the lyrics, but he knew them very well, and I felt so honored. It was such an amazing thing that he had taken the time. So don't you leave your home for me, cause all I have is string and feathers just to sow a pair of wings that won't hold in stormy weather. We both knew this would be free, cause where God's living, no man can linger. Holding 
it seems like again and again that's what the exercise of this record was was stealing three hours at a time in different studios grabbing and hoping that it works and that they've learned it you cannot imagine how much that was the case so let's talk about the jacob jacob was was similar i mean jacob was has been so 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 generous with me um giving me room and, and my music did he just start following you and reach out to you? Is that what happened? Yeah, it was 2021. And I had dreamt of an okapi. I woke up, it was like, I dreamt of an okapi. And okapi is a really fascinating animal. <laughs> and so I woke up, I opened Instagram, obviously, first thing. And then Jacob had just started following me. I and like, that... Wow. So I sent him a message that said, I just dreamt of an, an okapi. It must yeah. have been you. And then he answered, yeah, that was me. <laughs> you know? And so that's like... <laughs> That's how it happened, yeah. What was the process of putting that song together? You rehearsed it a few times. He practiced it ahead of time. You sent him the song. Uh, yeah, it was 2022 November. I was in Madrid, and I had been playing this song. Maybe I, I wrote that song, If a Tree Falls in Love with a River, yes. a few months earlier in my mom's house. I took a chance because sometimes I can text Jacob and he's in the middle of a tour in yeah. Shanghai and he won't answer. And sometimes, you know... That's also an interesting thing. Like you are in connection with these people, and you really have to respect their times. You can't be annoying. You can't reach out all the time, you know. But in a way that it feels natural, because you're, you're friends. Yeah. Anyway, I I sent him that song, and it was very late at night. I had just played a show in Madrid and sent him the song, and I said, "If there's any chance you like this and you find yourself in it." Would you like to record this? And he immediately responded. He listens to the song and he said, that's just wonderful. I have one day off in January that week, you know. And I was like, great, I'm going to be there because I'm opening for Nickel Creek in London. Oh, it really did just happen to work out that way? Yes, it was crazy. But that happened with most of the songs as well. It was like Chris also was there for a second in New York. And you, you know? were here, yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing. His manager told me he's going to have... Some time off between this day and this day, what I did was I went to London a week before my shows with Nickel Creek so that I could take that much time to accommodate to whenever he would have Where did you stay? I got an Airbnb. So you spent money for a week of Airbnb waiting for the day that he would be available. Yeah. And would he notice her face when it changes? And what did you do the rest of that week? I hung out with other musicians in London. I ended up doing more recordings, writing sessions with other musicians I had met through Instagram. That's the case for every song. Reserved sometime. I, I booked flights to go to where these people lived. And in between, I would just work nonstop in New York making money as a babysitter yeah. to afford doing that. Are you still doing that? I am still doing that. And I have no problem with it, you know, uh, until music is able to sustain me properly. I'd rather hang out with <laughs> some of my best friends who happen to be eight year olds, <laughs> you know, and who really helped me be a better musician. How so? Well, for for a kid to stay 
looking at you and he listening to you for a whole hour or hour and a half. You have to become a really good storyteller, you know, because when the story is not good enough or it doesn't have enough pull, they'll just move on to something else. So I think that has made me a much better musician, storyteller, communicator. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Is there any part of you, though, that the adrenaline, the ego, the the high of being an artist, being in Europe, opening big shows of the validation that you receive when you open your Instagram and Jacob Collier is following you, but then you have to kind of compartmentalize all of that and go into the space, not only with these kids and meet them where they are, but also it's transactional. You're the babysitter. I mean, I know you have established some very deep and lasting relationships with the families that you work with, but like you have to not be famous Lao Noah or, uh, you know, artist Lao. You have to just be doing the job. Is that difficult? Is Maybe it's good for you. It's healthy to it's have It's probably that? very healthy and very yeah. good. It's frustrating. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating that this has to still happen. Yeah. But I also choose to live in New York. It's one yeah. of the most expensive places to live in. But yeah, no, it's frustrating because it, it, it's just very weird. I yeah. just played the Royal Albert Hall yes. solo, you know. Yes. And it went really well. And yeah. then the day after I came back from tour, I did a 10-hour babysitting shift, you know. Yes. Because I couldn't really afford to spend a week just not working. Which says a lot about how broken the business is, man. It's just it's just impossible. And I know most people don't really want to talk about this stuff because it's not glamorous and it's not, you know, no one, when you have a career that from the outside looks like it's just popping, it's great, it's going amazing. I think people don't really want to talk about the struggles uh, or to put themselves in the same position as any other person who has to work at a coffee shop. But this is the reality, and I guess if we don't talk about it, then nothing will change, you know. I I totally agree, and I'm glad that you brought it up. I think also maybe the concern is that somehow you don't seem grateful because you have a lot of artists that would be looking at you and saying, why is she complaining? She's just played these uh, these wonderful shows that we all aspire to, and, you know. But you explained some of the economics of that opening tour to me. Yeah how you had to pay your transportation, your lodging, yeah. your merch or sound person or somebody to drive you. Otherwise, you were going to have to drive yourself all over the UK. On the other side of the road. On the other <laughs> side of the road. And pay your ticket over there. It seemed, as you described the economics to me, that there was actually no way to make money on the tour. Oh, no, because then the venue gets a merch cut. And it's not... Insignificant. Uh, no, it's about 25% yeah. of a merch cut. Some venues have a minimum commission that can be as high as 500 pounds. For selling merch. When you're getting paid 250 pounds. They charge you 500 so for no, selling I, merch. So what happened was that I ended up going and talking to a human being and giving them the numbers and being like, do you think yeah. this makes sense? Yeah. And then they'd be like, okay, we'll waive that. But we're still taking 25% of your merch, you know. That kind of sucks. It kind of sucks and it's real. And I, I want to address what you said because it can seem like I am complaining when I have all these great opportunities. But the way I see it is if I am at this point in my career where I am opening for big acts and I'm getting great opportunities and I'm playing with great people and I have a, a, a solid following on social media and I am getting paid 250 pounds for a show in one of the most important venues in the world, that means that whoever's coming up below is getting paid much less. Yes. If I get paid better, then the people that are coming up will get paid better as well. Because yeah. if I get paid better, 
I can afford to pay these people mm. who I'm hiring for my band much better as well. So what I'm doing in a way, I think, is fighting for all of us for, for that you know, sliding scale yes. of, of scale of experience, of opportunity. If the professional musicians are getting paid 100 bucks to play in a bar, that means that all the amateurs and all the people who are just starting don't stand a chance. Yeah. With these opening opportunities, yeah. obviously, there's a reason why you do it. Sure. You, know. you do your, the best you can. Actually, with this band thing that just happened, yes. it was amazing because the tour got canceled midway. He got sick. He got, he got tendonitis. Oh. And the UK part of the tour was with a band. But the Europe part was going to be piano solo. So it was impossible for him to to keep going. Then something crazy happened. Um, tour gets canceled. The agent tells me right after my set at the Royal Albert Hall. I was in the clouds. I was also in the dressing room that Sabina had been in when he played there. And I was so stoked about that. And... And then the agent comes in, and I'm like, do you want some whiskey? And he's like, maybe after this conversation. I was like, oh, shit. And he's like, we're going to have to cancel the Europe tour. And obviously, I had to front all the expenses for that. I had all the all the flights, all the train tickets. And he was like, and yeah, and we cannot help you. Oh, my God. We cannot give you any money. We cannot, nothing. Like, you could try and contact all the promoters, because had, I had a promoter for every single show. Yeah. And ask if they would still forward your fee, which was like 200 euros, 100 euros, 150 per show. Yeah. Ridiculous. And all of them said, no, sorry, we can't help you. And we're talking about Live Nation, you know, it's like <laughs> the wealthiest. Yeah. You know, they all said no. So I went, okay, I made a post on Instagram and I said, this just happened. The tour is canceled. I have non-refundable flights. I could still do this if anyone will have me. And Leo, I got... 50 60 offers within three days to play all over europe and i ended up putting together a tour with the help of strangers and fans on instagram of 15 dates all over that paid a minimum of 500 bucks yeah. per show and most of them covered accommodation and yeah. transportation yeah. so you made more money playing in people's houses and in it was not people's houses it was, was it? clubs it was venues museums galleries it was proper places with pa systems you know, which made me think, like, what? I had tried putting together a tour before, six months in advance. And it didn't and, work. And it didn't work as well as that. And then I realized that maybe, you know, people, maybe there's been a change in my career in the recent months that I've been putting out this music and I developed a more solid fan base, people who are more willing to give me that opportunity. But I think also people really loved the romanticism of the whole, you know, underdog thing. Yes, and there is an interesting phenomenon that takes place between fans and artists where your audience, when it is able to feel like it's part of the success that yeah. they're experiencing, I don't know, they they love it a little more, you know, because they feel it's theirs, it's their six it was their concert also. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was they made all it of it. They yeah. were part of it. Absolutely. But that also comes with with the way you interact with them because I remember this guy was like there's this great venue and we'd love to put a concert together for you and we'll have all these musicians play as your like an ensemble for your music yeah. and I was like that's amazing and then he asked huh. do you need a hotel or would you would you be okay staying in my house with yeah. my wife and I was like I can yeah. stay on the couch yeah. no problem you yeah. know and I think it goes both ways 
It's really lovely. I want to ask about more, a few other people on the record. Do you know who I don't know much about is Salvador Sobral. Oh, yeah. What a voice. Well, he's incredible. He is incredible. He's Portuguese? He's Portuguese. I met him in that jazz commune I lived in when I was 16. Uh -huh. And he was like 21 or something like that. And he had a very uh, a life-threatening heart disease. And that's, I can say that because it's yeah. very well known. He had a, a, a pacemaker. He was so young. Yeah. And he needed a heart transplant and they couldn't find a donor. So for many years he had, you know, very complicated way of of going through life, but also a very excited way of living because mm. it was so, he didn't take it for granted. And I was in that strange, uh, difficult situation with the people I lived with. Yes. And then I moved to New York. I don't know anything about him at all. And a few years later, he goes and wins the Eurovision yes. contest, which is the biggest music contest in Europe. Yes. And he becomes a superstar. And obviously because he becomes a superstar, they find someone who can help him. Who can help him. And he has a heart transplant. His life changes. There's interviews of him talking about how suddenly he goes up the stairs and then he looks down and he goes, oh my God, I just did that. I just went up the stairs. I can play soccer for the first time in my life. I can go swimming, you know. He obviously has an amazing career, starts touring everywhere. He's the least, like, celebrity person I've ever met. Like, he despises that. He's so natural and so nice. And then I have my tiny desk. My tiny desk comes out. That might be one of the examples of why it was good that it came out then. Mm -hmm. And a few months after the tiny desk comes out, I open my email and I see all these radio stations from Catalonia reaching out to me. I was like, what happened? Well, Salvador had an interview with one of the biggest radio stations in, in Catalonia. And when they asked him who he had discovered recently that he loved, he said, Launoa. I just suddenly I see her on Tiny Desk. And so that made us reconnect about 10 years after, 10 or 12 years after. And so the next time we saw each other was at the studio mm. last year to record this song. I heard you sing this song before, but... Actually hearing the story of a man who has a heart transplant. And the song talks about how objects are transformed. Yeah. The image that you use is a chair is just a chair until you give it a heart. Yeah, that is beautiful. I didn't notice. That's insane. It's so beautiful. You weren't thinking about no, it. No, <laughs> I never thought about this. Chair is a chair till you give it a heart. A heart is a heart till you break it apart. And a part of this song was for you from the start. So sing it along, don't you worry. If you kiss the blisters on my little hands, so tired from carving all lonely. I pile up some wood and make a little rest by my side for you only let's talk about some more of the stories on this record cecile mclaurin Salvan. yeah another super random thing she's incredible and i listened to her music for years and then um last year i connected also through instagram with michael league uh -huh. i was in barcelona and he invited me to a dinner party in his house. He lives in this little village. place yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know it existed, and I'm from Catalonia. And he invited 
a bunch of his friends and yeah. Cecile was in his house. They were maybe recording something. She had been staying there a few days. And we had dinner and it was her, it was Andrea Motis, mm -hmm. it was um, this incredible Turkish singer, uh, a bunch of other musicians. And Cecile and I ended up sitting together at dinner and we did not talk about music. We spoke about love and about dragons and mythology and we got along really well. <laughs> And after dinner, we, you know, what, what musicians do. Like someone picks up a guitar and starts playing. And I played a song of mine. And when I finished playing, <laughs> Cecile goes, you're so weird. <laughs> 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 and I thought that was the most beautiful compliment in the world. So we exchanged contacts. And a week later, I was like, would you like to play this song for my record? And it's a song I had put out before on uh -huh. my EP. And she's like, I know this song. I heard it. I love it. I was like, I'd love to do a version with you where you sing in Spanish. And I never heard her sing in Spanish before. In French, yes, but not in Spanish. And she comes into the studio and she sings with this perfect accent. And it was magical. Yeah. We share a friend in Jorge Drexler. Yeah. You sang Libertad with him. Yeah. Libertad. Yo te escribo esta canción sin conocerte, sin afán de describirte o contenerte, sin amante, sin bandera y sin un dios. Libertad, he llegado al andén con mi equipaje. Estoy listo para llevarte de viaje, aunque el tren lo tomemos nada más. How did you connect with Jorge? He also started following me on Instagram in the pandemic. It was 2020, and he not only followed me on Instagram, but commented on a bunch of videos yeah. and then sent me a message saying, I didn't know you, I love yeah. what you do. It was great. Yeah. And then maybe a year later, I was in Barcelona, I went to see him play. And then uh, we hung out a couple of times in La Noche Madrileña, you know. Mm. You're in the zone with all these people. Yeah. One interesting thing about you, though, is that you belong to an extremely creative generation of Spanish female artists and mm -hmm. catalan female artists mm -hmm. but you left yeah so you both Way before be that you belong to the generation and yet you're you're not part of it or you're part of it but you don't belong to it. you know it's like you grew out of the same soil mm -hmm. so i mean what is your relationship to spain like and to catalonian like right now it changed in the past years because of one one little thing that happened which was that I wrote Siete Lágrimas. Yeah. I posted it online. And then Catalan musicians started singing this song in their shows. Mm. And I found out a while after that. And that's how we connected. I connected with the artists that are that are at the head of the scene there, like uh, Rita Payes yes. and Clara Peya, all these yeah. people. I had a wound with the experience I had had with the uh, community in Barcelona, music community, because of that time in my late teens where I was not allowed to play, you know, I was told, you're not good enough, you're not going to be good. So I, maybe I turned my back to my own country in terms of music. Like, yeah. I'm not going to find anyone there whom I can make music with. And that all changed when this new generation of musicians 
a lot of women musicians, yeah. a lot of them came out of the San Andreo jazz band, the yes. Juan Chamorro thing. Incredible. Andrea Motis came yes. out of that. I think Rita, Rita as well. Yeah. And, and they, what they did was just alongside, obviously, the matriarch of all that is Silvia Perez Cruz, yes. um, who helped Spain and Catalonia so much culturally and musically because she grabbed what was the oldest, most beautiful part of Spanish musical tradition and gave it a new face and made it so new and fresh. And and so a lot of these people we're talking about, I think, are highly influenced by Silvia. And we, are you? Up there. I'd never listened to her music, I think, because when she was starting to be a big thing in Spain, that's when kind of when I left, yeah. you know. But even me, I can't deny how much she's paved the way for people like me to actually go back to Spain now and have a place. And she's on the record with you. And she's on the record with me. That's the thing about this record is that it's doing a lot of work for you in a lot of different ways. It's yeah. also establishing you as a Spanish artist and a Spanish language artist, not only here, but there. It's yeah. almost unseen or unheard of. Hmm. First of all, to launch a Spanish language career from New York that resonates as deeply in Spain or in Latin America as it does in the States. You're playing in a lot of different fields at the same time with yeah. this. I think by necessity, I've become very comfortable with always being the odd one out. <laughs> and that has played in my favor in this sense. I think yeah. it was it was good to start a career uh, on the guitar, singing in Spanish, very Spanish music-influenced here, where no one else was yeah. doing that, you know. Um, that has helped me a lot. Yeah. There's this anecdote um, that Benjamin Zender, the incredible uh, classical music conductor, talks about... On his talks, he says that there's these two uh, businessmen that go to certain places in Africa and they want to start a shoe company. Yeah. One of them goes, it's a disaster. No one uses shoes here. Yeah. So the other one goes, great opportunity. Yeah. No one uses shoes here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit that. It's like, yeah. oh, no one's using shoes. All right. We can, we can do something here. You know? Do you feel frustrated when an audience doesn't know what you're saying? No, because uh, time and time again, it has proven me that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen people cry listening to a song in Spanish they don't know anything about. They can't understand a single word of, you know. So I think it, it actually didn't matter. I, it was a concern in the beginning, and maybe that's the reason it took me about a year to start playing live shows, mm -hmm. because I thought, that's like, people don't speak Spanish here. Yeah. What's the point, you know? And it didn't matter. Yeah, and more and more people do. Yeah. It's the first time in history where the top 10 is mostly Spanish-speaking songs mm. in the U.S. You know, mm. it never happened before. Yeah. And, and that has also helped. I think it's an amazing time in music for diversity. I don't think it would have made sense in any other moment for an artist like me to open for Ben Folds. Yeah. I don't think so. 
someone in singing it in Spanish mostly, you know. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. I don't hear any Miley Cyrus in you at all. <laughs> what happened to the Miley Cyrus and the Disney in you? It's still there. I show it to my friends whom I meet, you know. Um, I remember a couple of years back, we were driving from a rehearsal with Adam Neely. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, yeah, Hannah Montana. He's yeah. like, I have never heard her music. I was like, and I played Nobody's Perfect, which yeah. is one of her first songs. And it's so cool. It's so great. And then I ended up, uh, Adam has a band called Songazer. Yes. It's like going all over the place. And they're very, very, they're very successful. And I grabbed the Songazer song and I made a mix up with a Hannah Montana song and it fits perfectly. It's great. One, two, three, Did you become friends with Adam after he spoke about you on his no, show the other before. way? Before uh, he also reached out on Instagram at some point. And your growth has happened through musicians. Yeah, I think that's the thing I like the most about my career. It's people I admire. It's not a big corporation. It's not a manager. It's not an ad campaign. It's musicians talking about it, and people I consider really great human beings. Like yeah. none of these people are less than what their music is you know are you seeing other people who are having a similar experience it just seems like a fairy tale i mean (laughs) not totally i understand you're doing (laughs) babysitting jobs and all of that but i mean it seems like any artist's dream would be to make work and have it be received so lovingly by so many admirable people yeah I, mean, I talk about this with Adam a lot because he is very successful and his stardom actually might be similar to Jacob's has to do with inspiring a lot of musicians. Mm-hmm. And so after shows, there's a long line of people who just want to talk about exciting music things to them, right? I remember him telling me, yeah, it's really great. It makes you feel really great to have so many musicians you admire like your music. It just doesn't sell tickets. (laughs) And I am willing to wait it out. I'm like, I'm willing to be patient, you know, that while I'm getting all these beautiful follows on Instagram from people I really love, I'll just be teaching Catalan and and babysitting and picking kids up from school. It's fine. Now, Noah, thank you for your patience. (laughs) Thank you for your music. Thank Thank you you. for your candor, your time, your friendship. Thank you. Same. So beautiful. Keep going. There she was, my friends, Lao Noah. What an incredible person. What an incredible story. I'll be back again in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. Keep going. Hold me, okay? Turn off the light blow the This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios. And you wrote a song. You wrote this song. I wrote a song. Is it still a song that you play? No. Is it good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was in Spanish also. It mm. was for the first time a song I had written in Spanish because 
before I watched this writing in English. Why do you think that is? I think it's a, it's a cultural thing. In Spain at that time, there really wasn't a popular culture of um, music in Spanish that was kind of the style I was doing. And Disney Channel had hit really hard. And we had all the high school musical stuff and Hannah Montana. And I think it was just cool to, to write in English. There was no other option. You know, yeah. now you have incredible artists writing in Spanish and in Catalan yeah. in Spain um, that have beautiful careers. But before we didn't really have that. You know, I had the opposite experience when I moved to Spain in the late 90s. There was a surge of Spanish language singer songwriters Yeah, in Madrid, in Madrid in particular. Yeah. yeah. And I was extremely disappointed when years later I discovered in Spain that young songwriters were writing in English. I found it to be <laughs> unnecessary. Right especially because of the richness that I felt of the Spanish language. And I don't know enough about how Catalan is organized to know, but I imagine that it has its own richness that I, you know, I was sort of like, I don't want to hear other people writing in English. There's already enough people writing in English. But I do understand that it has become sort of like the common language of popular songwriting in the world. That's right. I think Spain is particularly interesting with this stuff because it took us a bit longer than anywhere else in Europe to get out of first the dictatorship, a dictator, you know. Um, and so I remember my uncle, my parents talking about that one moment when the gates, the faucet of all the modern world it opened opened for the first time, right? And so I think it was a new thing and it, what it did was, I mean, people rejected that old world where everything was in Spanish and Spain and, yeah. you know, patriotism and and we got all the all the new stuff all the new modern music from america the porn all this oh, that's what i was gonna say it's like when you look at what happened in spain it's particularly in the 80s when the faucet opened it was like totally disorganized and in some ways i think misunderstood the way sexuality and pornography entered into the fray i mean i've only consumed it through all mode of our films and sort of like <laughs> images of La Movida and all this stuff, but it just seems like it had no sense of structure about it. And it was, in a way, it was entering completely unfiltered. Yeah, there's not an organic growth. That's it right. just came in <laughs> like a punch, yeah. right? I remember I watched the documentary about Playboy magazine, for mm. example, and how it developed over the years. It took a long time yeah. for them to allow, you know, uh, full frontal yeah. nudity yeah. or the bush or yeah. something, you know, like it was the thing that took time for people to get used to in spain it just came ah, in, yeah, like, exactly. all the way yeah for sure but also there's something interesting because i think throughout the civil war and the dictatorship a lot of our artists went into exile they left mm -hmm. they literally left the place right yes. so i think there also was a lack of the creative people yes that felt forced to leave yes what well, I mean, one thing i'm struck by is that so you're 29 or 30 years old now? I'm still 29. I'm sorry, forgive me. You're <laughs> 29 years old. But in Spain, the legacy of the Civil War and the dictatorship is still very present, even in your generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the C Spanish Civil War precedes World War II. Mm -hmm. So that would be like talking to a 29-year-old American today who's speaking about their cultural influences in relation to something that happened in World War II or the Great Depression in the United States, which is, just feels like to Americans, like so far away. Yeah. But I think the dictatorship is still part of the conversation in Spain and what happened after that. I guess we still suffer the consequences. We still have a king and a queen who's 
father was appointed by Franco, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of the governing forces in Spain are still mm -hmm. elected, uh, you know, representatives by that kind of government and that kind of dictatorship. So I think people don't quite feel like we have totally moved on from that time, absolutely. I think I asked you this last time, but just remind me about your name. My real, my legal name is Laura Kaila Puch. I went to register my songs around 16 at this nice guy, guy office in Barcelona. And my mom, she's a lovely lady, but she's the kind of person who will speak for you all the time. And the lady at the desk was like, artist name? And my mom goes, she doesn't have one. And I go, yes, I do. And that's what came out. No idea. I think I was watching one of the American TV shows and one of the guys I thought was cute was, was Noah. named Noah. And I just said, loud Noah. Did you know the Israeli singer Noah, Achinoam Nini? No. No. I didn't even know at that time that Israel existed, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now it's funny because the last show I did in, on this resilience tour that the people put together was in Germany and they wrote a, an article about it on the newspaper and it started with, Launoa comes from a Jewish family from Barcelona. It's like, what? <laughs> I have no Jewish blood in me. But, no, thank you. Thank you. This is so fun. Can